millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of American Biography is brought to you by audible.com. Remember, you can get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash American Biography. Audible has over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. So download your free audiobook today by going to www.audibletrial.com forward slash American Biography. John Marshall, Episode 7, Revolutions of the Heart, Revolutions of the Mind. Last time, we pretty much put the finishing touches on John Marshall's active career as a soldier, but if you recall, his enlistment hadn't yet technically expired, so he and a number of other surplus officers were furloughed, because, well, with Virginia showing little to no interest in sending more troops to the Continental Army to replace those leaving it, they frankly weren't needed. So John was home, just kicking around Oak Hill, for much of the winter of 1779, waiting in vain for some news, for any news. After three years of active campaigning and living the busy life of a junior officer, Marshall was likely bored as hell at home and feeling worse than useless, knowing the war rolled on without him. Come the following February, John was through waiting, and walked the 160-plus miles to Yorktown, Virginia, where he was to join his cousin Humphrey and his brothers Thomas and James, who were with the Virginia State Artillery Regiment stationed there, under the command of his father, the now Colonel Thomas Marshall. John Marshall's decision to join his father at this time and in this place would have resounding, life-changing consequences for the future Chief Justice. Colonel Thomas Marshall was lodged in the abandoned home of a long, absconded Tory, which sat next to a prominent local Patriot family, the Amblers. 
The Amblers were leading members of the Tidewater elite and were one of the most illustrious families of Virginia. Jocelyn Ambler, the head of the household, was also the collector of customs in Yorktown, a lucrative position prior to the war. However, the import business had been hard lately, with the British Royal Navy preventing commerce as usual from coming into the Patriot-held port. So the spring of 1780 witnessed the waning fortunes of the Amblers intersect with the waxing fortunes of the Marshals, propelled as they were by the widespread admiration of Colonel Thomas Marshall's military exploits, which forged a friendship that might have been unthinkable a mere decade earlier. But now these two families regularly found themselves mingling in polite society. In fact, they seemed to get along quite well and dined together regularly. And long before he ever arrived at Yorktown, John and his exploits with the light infantry were well known, as Thomas Marshall often read aloud to Jocelyn and Rebecca Ambler, along with their four daughters, the letters John sent his father from the front, letters which are sadly lost to us today. Upon learning that he was coming to Yorktown, the Amblers organized a ball in John Marshall's honor. Eliza, the eldest Ambler daughter, later recalled, Our expectations were raised to the highest pitch, and the little circle of York was on tiptoe awaiting his arrival. The young ladies of Yorktown were absolutely underwhelmed when they finally met John. Eliza gives voice to the disappointment, writing, I, expecting an Adonis, lost all desire of becoming agreeable in his eyes when I beheld his awkward figure, unpolished manners, and total negligence of person. But before the ball, when John's stock was still high, Eliza's usually quiet 14-year-old sister Mary threw her hat in the ring and declared that she would be the one to win over John Marshall, so all the other girls should probably just save themselves the trouble and the embarrassment. Well, as the other bells of Yorktown were busy hitting the eject button on Operation Marshall upon setting their eyes on the disheveled frontier lieutenant, Mary, who also went by Polly for some reason, apparently recognized some quality beneath John's rough and uncouth veneer. Over the years, Eliza Ambler too would come to recognize it, writing, Under the slouched hat, there beamed an eye that penetrated at one glance the inmost recesses of the human character, and beneath the slovenly garb dwelt a heart complete with every virtue. For his part, Marshall was captivated by little Polly Ambler, who at five foot two, was nearly a foot shorter than he, and the two must have looked quite the spectacle as John towered above her on the dance floor. Jean Smith describes the young lady as striking rather than beautiful, and says, Her complexion was dark, she was slight, and had a prominent patrician nose, high cheekbones, a thin mouth, and arched eyebrow, which were accompanied by wide-set brown eyes and a frame of brown curls. Following the ball, John hung around town for six weeks, visiting the Ambler house every afternoon, trying to make himself generally useful to them, and where, I kid you not, he pulled what must have been the oldest trick in the book even in 1780, and read poetry aloud to the Ambler girls. Smooth move, Casanova. Clearly smitten, and maybe with his thoughts turning towards domesticity, Marshall enrolled at William and Mary College 
just 14 miles away from Yorktown, for lectures on the law that spring, to be given by George Wythe, if not America's, then certainly Virginia's finest legal mind of the day. The College of William and Mary was as much in a state of revolution academically as the country around it was politically. When Thomas Jefferson was elected governor of Virginia in 1779, in his capacity as chairman of the board of William and Mary, he initiated sweeping, modernizing changes. These included the abolition of the divinity and oriental language chairs and the addition of professorships for law and public policy, anatomy, medicine, and chemistry, and modern language. Jefferson reached out to his former teacher, the aforementioned George Wythe, to take over the new law and public policy chair. Several years later, while a minister in Paris, Jefferson wrote to Wythe in language likely emblematic of the type of program Jefferson knew Wythe would implement at William and Mary when he offered him the position. He wrote, Preach, my dear sir, a crusade against ignorance. Establish and improve the law for educating the common people. Let our countrymen know that the people alone can protect us against these evils, and that the tax which will be paid for this purpose is not more than the thousandth part of what will be paid to kings, priests, and nobles who will rise up among us if we leave the people in ignorance. Why didn't disappoint? When Marshall had signed up, he probably wasn't aware to the extent that he was going to be a guinea pig for the unprecedented curriculum Wythe had synthesized. In effect, Wythe was unveiling a comprehensive new program that rightly earned him recognition as one of the first professors of law in North America. What was happening at William & Mary was a stark departure from the past. I touched upon the traditional method for becoming a lawyer in episode 1, but just to freshen your memory. It basically consisted of apprenticing oneself to an established lawyer and performing the type of administrative work modern attorneys usually give to paralegals in exchange for access to the master attorney's books and legal manuscripts. Hence the idiom, reading law, to mean the same thing as training to become a lawyer. The results of this system were uneven, to say the least. Some attorneys took their responsibilities to their apprentices very seriously, and truly cultivated their professional development. Others used them to do the menial tasks that they didn't have the time or inclination to do themselves, resulting in a proliferation of attorneys with fine administrative skills, but who lacked a comprehensive understanding of legal theory, which impaired their ability to apply the disparate precedents they'd memorized, and sometimes compromised their ability to effectively argue on behalf of their clients. George Wythe was about to unleash something totally different, and it was largely due to William Blackstone. Remember Blackstone? Back from episode one? I mentioned that Blackstone's commentaries were a game-changer for the legal profession in North America, and we're about to see it in action at William & Mary. In addition to Blackstone, students were also given Montesquieu's The Spirit of the Laws, as well as David Hume, in addition to other various treaties and statutes to read. Wythe supplemented their reading with lectures on Tuesdays and Thursdays. In this way, his students gained a more comprehensive, more holistic appreciation of the law and how to argue it. To buttress this more dynamic aspect of the program, and because its goals weren't just to train lawyers alone, but also the future leaders of a democratic society, 
Wythe also established some of the first moot courts and mock legislatures, where the students gained much-needed practical experience for careers in either field. Another of Wythe's innovations was having students keep a law notebook, where they would record statutes and relative precedents by topic, which not only helped to drive the lessons home, but could serve as ready-made resources once they were practicing attorneys. Marshall's notebook actually survives. It starts with abatement and ends at limitation of action. It covers 70 different subjects over the course of 238 pages, but throughout, there's also proof that John's mind wasn't always on his schoolwork. The words, Miss Maria Ambler, Miss M. Ambler, Miss M. Ambler and J. Marshall, John Marshall and Miss Polly Am, John and Maria, John Marshall and Miss Maria, Molly Ambler, and simply Ambler, can be found in the margins scattered throughout the manuscript. But outside of schoolwork and daydreaming about Polly Ambler, there were also social aspects to college life. Generally, it seems that life at William & Mary was pretty laid back. Faculty and student interactions were described as democratic. There was a college table, which was a communal mess, where students were strictly forbade liquor, but were provided beer, toddy, cider, or spirits and water. And just as a side note, in case you think that colleges awkwardly addressing student drinking problems is a new phenomenon, a decade after Marshall left William & Mary, the administration refined their alcohol policy and further prohibited the drinking of spiritous liquors, except in that moderation, which becomes the prudent and industrious student. Harsh. Anyway, students at William & Mary's were also not required to wear coats or shoes if the weather was warm. I guess in case a impromptu game of hacky sack were to spontaneously break out on the campus green. And there was also Greek life. The first chapter of Phi Beta Kappa was also at William & Mary, and Marshall was welcomed into that fraternity where he participated on their debate team. Of Marshall's interaction with his peers, Smith writes, Captain Marshall was popular among his classmates, and being older and more experienced, he was often looked to for leadership. In that capacity, Marshall took advantage of every opportunity to emphasize what he had learned from his military service and to stress the importance of a strong national government. Spencer Roan, who was 17 at the time, later recalled how the Chief Justice, a man of the most profound legal attainment, had devoted his thought, his tongue, and his pen to the cause of national power for as long as he had known him. All in all, this doesn't sound like a bad way to spend six weeks. Oh, yeah, you didn't know? The future Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and father of the federal judiciary formally studied law for about six weeks. A fellow student from this time wrote his parents, saying that anyone who could master this course in just a few months had strong natural parts or otherwise knew nothing about it. So to do this in just a few weeks Marshall must have been a damned prodigy, or, well... But what exactly cut short Marshall's studies? Was he suddenly called back to the war and given an important new command? Nope. Jocelyn Ambler was serving on Virginia's Council of State, a sort of board of advisors to the governor. 
and in June, he and his family were passing through Williamsburg, the former capital, on the way to the new capital at Richmond. When he caught wind of this, Marshall and some of his classmates hastily threw together a ball in honor of the Ambler girls. The fair was plain, but the company was grand, and the observant Eliza Ambler noted Marshall's devotion to her sister Polly was plain to see that evening. The next day the Amblers moved on. Marshall followed shortly after, never to return to his studies. Records place Marshall in Richmond by the end of July. Seeing that Virginia had still made no move towards raising troops to send to Washington, in accordance with the practices of the time, he petitioned his cousin Tom, still the governor, for a license to practice law. As part of the process, two lawyers were duly appointed to give Marshall an oral examination, and as luck would have it, they must not have asked any questions about areas of law that came after M alphabetically, because by August 28th, Marshall presented himself to the Falkware County Court with a license to practice law signed by Governor Thomas Jefferson. Had Jefferson known that he had just launched the career of possibly his greatest opponent, I bet he would have wished to have had that one back. Oh, the irony. So this is where we're going to wrap up this time. With John, a month shy of his 25th birthday, a captain in Washington's army with no troops to lead, and a member of the Bar of Virginia, ready to hang up his shingle, except for that one tiny minor hiccup that, due to the war, the Virginia State Courts were closed. Alright, as always, thank you for listening. If you have any suggestions, comments, questions, or concerns, please send them my way at AmericanBiographyPodcast at gmail.com. I'm happy to announce that you can now follow American Biography on Twitter, and the handle is at American underscore bio, and I think that's how you communicate that information. So go ahead and tweet at me, people. I'd also like to thank the people who have chosen to help the show out financially. Thanks to you, we are about halfway to where we need to be right now to upgrade from our free account with the hosting site uh, in order to get additional upload time. I really appreciate your help. If you haven't done so yet and think you would ever like to support a little podcast about American history, now is the time. And remember, you can help at no cost to you by signing up for a free audiobook download and free 30-day trial by visiting www.audibletrial.com forward slash American Biography. You can also visit our website, AmericanBiography.webs.com, and make a secure PayPal donation through the donate button you'll find there. But there are other non-monetary ways to help the show. You can like or share American Biography on Facebook or on Twitter. Or you can give the show a nice iTunes review, as some of you have, and thanks for that too, guys. Or you can always just tell a friend about it. That works too. Okay, that's all. Please join me next time when John Marshall goes rogue and takes matters into his own hands. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you soon.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.